Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program exploring all the high-stakes speed bumps and off-ramps of driving to the top of your market with our host, Chris Beal from Connect and Sell and Corey Frank from Branch 49. In this episode of the Market Dominance Guys, Chris Beal reviews how artificial intelligence and machine learning will impact the future of sales. Chris shares his thoughts on how decision supporting using AI can make it easier and faster to figure out what to do. He gives an example of a prospective customer who wants to talk to CEOs of companies using the entrepreneurial operating system popularized in the book Traction. Beal was able to use ChatGPT to find the names of CEOs running companies that were probably following EOS. In just a few minutes, he had a list of CEOs, company names, and phone numbers. He believes that AI and machine learning will help sales teams be more efficient at finding the folks they want to talk to. They'll be able to understand their sales teams better, which helps sales run better. In addition to AI, he covers inbound and outbound marketing strategies and which one is more effective. Finally, Chris explores the power of negative conversations and driving pipeline and how they can be more effective than positive conversations. Join us for this episode, Sales Success in the Age of AI and Emotional Intelligence. Hey everybody, Chris Beal here, co-host of Market Dominance Guys with another episode of Market Dominance Guys. I find myself today all alone. I'm here in West Seattle, looking out at the water, watching ferries go by, water taxis, an occasional harbor seal, hoping for a cruise ship, but haven't seen one yet. And my co-host, Corey Frank, is super busy right now, building Branch 49 and servicing customers. And I've got a little time this afternoon. So I thought instead of Corey, I'd do something with our friend ChatGPT. So I asked ChatGPT, to provide 12 provocative questions that a podcast host might ask Chris Beal, CEO of Connect and Sell and co-host of the Market Dominance Guys podcast. So ChatGPT is going to be kind of our host and interviewers, so to speak. And I'm going to answer these questions as best I can. Now, one thing that I thought was pretty impressive was the speed with which ChatGPT came up with these 12 questions. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time and it thinks things over. It might take 10 seconds, 20 seconds. This was like, there is your 12. So I thought that was very interesting. And we'll just jump right in. So this is Chris Beal, a glass of wine, a beautiful afternoon here in West Seattle, and ChatGPT asking provocative questions. So provocative question number one, how do you think the rise of artificial intelligence and machine learning is going to impact the future of sales? Now, that's what we call a big, big question, right? So I've got some ideas. I know some of these things are going to seem a little short-term and some are kind of long-term. The short-term ones I'm pretty certain of, mostly because I'm already doing them. The long-term ones, eh, we'll see, right? So the short-term ones have to do with just making it easier and faster to figure out what to do. I'll call it decision support. So I have an example. I have a prospective customer who would like to talk to CEOs of companies that are using the entrepreneurial operating system as popularized in the book Traction. That's a really hard problem to solve with something like Zoom Info or Apollo or whatever, and it's not really solvable 
with Google, now you could find folks that had attended an online event or physical event or into the traction concept, the EOS as it's called. But hey, how about asking ChatGPT for the names of CEOs who are running companies that are probably following EOS? Well, I tried it and I'd actually tried it during the time that my prospective customer asked the question. And in about, oh, I don't know, three, four minutes, I had first name, last name. I knew the title, CEO of a bunch of companies. And I had the company names. I ran them through our list enrich process. And voila, I had a list of folks that could be called on the best phone number known for them from actual experience. And it was really, really straightforward. So artificial intelligence in this case, with a whole bunch of knowledge built in, because ChatGPT has got this immense amount of knowledge, mind you, only up to September 2021, but still things don't change that fast, gave me a great answer. And so it did something that I'll say was not practical to do some other way. And it got us into a calling state. And in a calling state, as soon as you're calling a list, you'll learn an awful lot and you'll learn it really fast. In the long run, I think a bunch of other things are going to happen. And I think mostly they're going to be around being able to be more efficient at finding the folks you want to talk with. So there's uh, the whole idea of intent. Now, I'm a little, I don't know, I'm not 100% bullish on what most people call high intent. I think it's a little strange competitively to choose to dive into a red ocean, highly competitive red ocean, with everybody else who has the same intent signals and think that you're getting an advantage. I think sometimes folks forget that it's always competitive in sales. And I'm thinking B2B sales, but it, you know, it could be any sales. But B2B especially, it's a zero-sum game. Nobody's choosing you and your competitor to solve the same problem. Why would you want to be late? I don't know. Artificial intelligence and machine learning is going to help us be earlier. I also think it's going to help us understand our sales teams better. It's very, very difficult and it's kind of subtle to figure out what's really going on with your sales team before you've spent an awful lot of money finding out what's going on with your sales team. Being able to understand what's actually happening, ask questions of your data in a way that you can understand as a sales leader or business leader, I think it's going to be a big, big impact or have a big impact on sales. That is, sales will run better because you'll have teams that consist of folks who are doing better because you can ask questions to find out who's, who's really doing better. And it's not just who made their number last quarter or last year. Okay, number two, what's your take on the debate between inbound and outbound marketing strategies? Which one do you think is more effective? This podcast is called Market Dominance, guys. And anything could be used to dominate markets, but I think it's a question of timing. So in most markets, at least as a market hypothesis, you have an idea of who you'd like to talk to. Well, it's a lot easier and faster just to go talk to people that you'd like to talk to and get information back from them as to what they think of your offering, of your concept, of your product, of you, than it is to wait for people to come to your website because you did some advertising. So uh, by the way, outbound is also very powerful marketing. It's not just outbound sales. When you talk to somebody, they're very likely to go to your website on the spot. That makes your outbound calling into inbound response. 
And so you get a response of somebody coming inbound. And then by the way, you know, they answer the phone because you called them to get them to come inbound. And then you go back outbound. One thing that's not obvious to most of us until we look at the numbers and we have to look backwards from the opportunities back to the conversations that preceded them is negative conversations or negative outcome conversations are actually more powerful in driving pipeline than positive conversations. Positive conversations are great. You get a meeting or you get a follow-up and you move forward. But interestingly, once somebody's within that safety, that zone of it's okay, I'm not on that call anymore, to do what they want to do, often what they want to do, since you interrupted them, is they want to complete looking at your website, which you got them to go take a look at. So which is more effective? It's really a question to me of which goes first. You want to do outbound first because you can make a list, which is your market hypothesis. Go talk to the subset of that list that answers the phone, get information back sooner, adjust your hypothesis, adjust your message, which is your product at that point, and tune faster and more cheaply than you can in A-B testing a bunch of messaging on inbound. So at some point, however, you get to the folks who don't answer the phone. Fortunately, if you use a conversation first strategy, you've already dominated that market and the inbounds come to you because you're the standard. All right, number three, can you share a story about a time you failed at something in your professional life? How did you bounce back from it? Oh my goodness, I have so many of these. So there's one that comes to mind. I don't know if I bounced back exactly. I suppose I did. I went off into another industry once and tried to run a software style, I'll call it, business in a services business that was heavier. It involved floor finishing. It was high-tech, but not as high-tech as software. It's not as light as software. Software businesses are very, very lightweight, and you're not carrying equipment. You're not carrying leases. You're not carrying offices. This particular story, we got up to 22 offices open around the country in nine months, We were growing at 30% a month and we had a product failure across our entire portfolio. And I had not raised enough money to buffer ourselves against that product failure. We managed to resolve it in a few days, but a few days wasn't fast enough. We ended up selling the company. And how did I bounce back from it? I wasn't feeling very good. I wasn't feeling very good about myself. A dear friend of mine said, reach out to somebody that you know you can help. And once they accept your help, you'll feel better. So I did that, that somebody happened to be a very dear friend of mine who's a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. And what do you know, a few days later, I was in Silicon Valley talking to some folks at a company about their product. I kind of gave a very firm criticism of the product. I think I said it was a fake. And next thing you know, I was running product at that company. I was the EVP of product. And I went from being deep in the hole personally and probably feeling that way professionally to having a job. Didn't have a car, rode the bicycle in the dark in the mornings over to light rail. And that was all great adventure, actually. And just kind of grounded out and came back out of that hole. And and that company, actually, we ended up kind of spinning another company off. And then the VC in question, they decided to shut it down. I just bounced back from that by going to do some things for some of their other companies and just kind of keeping on keeping on. How do you stay motivated and focused when faced with challenges or setbacks? Now, this is an interesting question. 
I've never had a motivation problem. I don't know why. I don't know if I have a focus problem or not. I probably do. A lot of different things interest me, but I've never had a motivation problem. So to me, I I actually like having the wolf at the door, as I call it. I don't know why. I've always felt more comfortable when I felt like I was under some kind of either time pressure or financial pressure or both. Thank goodness those things just naturally show up. You don't have to work very hard to bring time pressure and financial pressure into your life. They will show up. So your life is like a racehorse that eats while you sleep and the wolf will come to your door. The wolf has an incredibly good nose for where there's things that need to be paid attention to. But I don't know. I've just always been the kind of person who goes, hey, there's people to help and problems to solve and I'm still alive. So give it a whirl. What is the biggest mistake you see salespeople make? This is question number five. And how can they avoid it? Now, I'm reading a very good book right now that I highly recommend called The Jolt Effect, I think is what it's called, or Jolt Impact or something like that. It's by the Challenger sales folks. And I think it points out this huge mistake that salespeople make, and we all make it, which is when the prospect is indecisive, there's an assumption that they just need to hear more from you. You need to kind of make it more obvious that your solution has value, that they're going to miss out if they don't take that value maybe throw a little fear, uncertainty, and doubt in there. And I think not recognizing that what you need to do is recognize that this person has a hard time making a decision right now. Can you de-risk the decision for them in some way? Can you take some of that pressure off in order to let them stop backing away from you into an indecisive mode? And that's difficult to do because as salespeople, we all want the deal. So how do we stay sincere and on the other person's side when we want the deal? And then how do we not waste our time? If sales was easy, everybody would be doing it well, but most people don't do it well. But the big mistake I see is exactly that. I call a version of this, I have a whole episode on it called the dog and the bone and the chain link fence. That is salespeople often act like a dog who's trying to get to a juicy bone on the other side of a chain link fence. And instead of recognizing that the path to the bone is to go 10 feet to the right and through the gate, they just keep pushing their nose into the fence. They get so close to what feels like success that they can't back up and see that there might be another path. And that path often has to do with the emotions of the other person. So it's something to think about. Number six, how do you think technology is changing the way sales teams work and collaborate? Two different questions. There's work and there's collaborate. I think collaborate technology is doing a little better at than work. I think technology often makes sales teams do more work because much technology, software technology, CRM is a good example, says Audrey, the meat-eating plant and little shop of horrors, feed me. And you feel like you're feeding the technology data all the time. And then the question is, what's it doing for you? And you'll often notice when management is frustrated with their view of what's going on in sales, they demand that more data be put in the CRM. So how does it work for you? Not quite so obvious. So I actually don't think technology tends to change the way sales teams work in a way that reduces work, which would be great. I think it is useful for collaboration, mostly in ways that we don't recognize the ability to 
share a document with somebody else, send it to them, have them make some comments on it and bring it back. Uh, in particular, collaborating with buyers, I think is easier now with technology. And imagine if you had to go to somebody's shop and take that big binder out or that folder. Remember, I don't know, most of you probably don't. When slides were something you put up on an overhead and you drew on. You know, technology has just made it a lot easier to kind of have conversations now using whatever support you need in terms of images and in terms of data than you could have before. Now, does this always make sales go faster? Probably not, but sometimes it does. And I think in a collaboration sense with the potential customer, I think we collaborate a little better or easier, I guess, uh, with technology. We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and Sell's patented technology loads your best sales folks up with eight to 10 times more live qualified conversations every day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing what kind of cheese they like on their impossible Whopper kind of qualified. Learn more at connectandsell.com. And we're back. Seven, what's your opinion on the role of emotional intelligence in sales and how can salespeople develop the skill? Read Jeb Blunt's book, Sales EQ. That's my recommendation to anybody listening to this. He wrote a whole book on the subject. Emotional intelligence is the number one thing you need in sales. It's probably number two and probably number three also. Again, I'll go back to this jolt effect. Anyway, when I go to look at that, well, the first thing in Jolt is J, which is judging whether the difficulty somebody's having making a decision is because they love the status quo or because they're indecisive. Well, this requires a lot of emotional intelligence to read the cues, to read those tea leaves. It it requires a lot of emotional intelligence to tell if somebody is concerned that you're not going to deliver or concerned that you're not on their side, or worried that perhaps they're going to look bad by making a decision with you because you're not the preferred number one everybody goes with. That kind of stuff requires emotional intelligence. And the sooner you can detect what's going on with the other person emotionally, the better. Reading the room is is another situation. I've been in lots and lots of meetings in my life where It took a fair amount of emotional intelligence to recognize, you know, that person, almost always a guy, in that back left corner who didn't say anything, that's the one who's going to ask the question at the end of this presentation that's going to feel like a spear being chucked into my chest, right? They've got something that they're going to try to kill me with. And having the emotional intelligence to recognize that and then kind of arrange so that the room is on your side before that happens or so that person realizes it's a bad idea to expose themselves through that question. That Those are high skills. That's where the deals are made or not made, failed in the big enterprises. So developing this skill, mostly it requires that you look at yourself, you look at your own behavior, probably with somebody else helping you and figure out Where is it that you get bound up inside yourself that you can't feel free about noticing how somebody else feels and being able to label those feelings? 
learning to label your own feelings, which is something Chris Voss talks about, and label the situation and the feelings of somebody else is really key. Until you can label emotions, you probably can't reason about them. And if you can't reason about them, you're not going to be able to use emotional intelligence. Number eight, how do you measure the success of your sales team and what metrics do you use? Well, the most obvious one is, are they making the number? But I mean, you didn't need ChatGPT to ask this question to me, right? Everybody wants to know, are you making the number? What I'm particularly interested in from a metrics perspective are flow rates. So I'm interested in the flow rate of conversations with relevant people. And those are first conversations, their follow-up conversations, and then their scheduled meetings. If those flow rates are not continuing fairly smoothly or growing because your business plan calls for them to grow, you got problems. And so right now, for instance, I am thrilled that the flow rate of test drives that connect and sell, we do a thing called an intensive test drive. It's a full day of production of our system. It's mind-blowing. People love it. It's not a demo. It's like full production. They're talking to real people. They're setting meetings. They're learning stuff from the feedback from prospects. And they're building pipeline. So what's not to like? Well, I don't know. Everything's got friction and getting somebody to like it enough to do it. And we took some friction out of our way of selling these free test drives. And voila, we suddenly had twice as many coming in per day or at least being signed. So that's a good thing. And that's one of the ways I measure it. I like to look at sales as though it's manufacturing. That is, you're moving something through a system and you're processing it along the way at different stations, just like manufacturing workstations. So I want to know where is the bottleneck right now? So one of the metrics I use is where's inventory building up? We increase the flow rates of test drives that have been signed. Well, does that mean there's now a bottleneck right in front of test drives that are being delivered? Probably. I mean, after all, why would we have had twice the capacity for delivery in advance? It's normally the case that if you increase the flow rate of something upstream in a process, you'll move the bottleneck downstream. So the metrics I'm using there are the backlog of test drives. Pretty simple. But then you've got to really dig into the data and make sure you're not just accepting glibly what some report says. You've got to make sure that whatever the distinctions are that are made in the report, they're actually correct, that they're distinctions based on real data. And you've got to make sure you don't fall into what I call the counting problem, where it's like, oh, I have five of these, but are they all equal sized? You have counting and then you have measuring and they're two different things and it's easy to get them kind of confused with each other. So those are some metrics. And the others are productivity metrics that I expect and want to have running pretty smoothly. And if they don't run smoothly, then something's up. So for instance, how many meetings are being set per hour per rep when they're prospecting? So our SDR team prospects at just about 0.51 meetings per rep hour. And I look at that every day. And in fact, I'm gonna look at it right now. You can't see this, but hey, take my word for it. So here we are on the 10th of May, 2023, and I can go into my connect and sell system and I can click a couple of buttons and I can get an answer to that question. So the team has set 25 meetings today on 403 conversations. And those conversations took a total of 55 hours and four minutes and 18 seconds. 
And in order to get those conversations, it took 7,562 dials, which by the way, the team didn't do. So what are the meetings per rep hour? Today, they're at 0.45. That's a little bit off. So then I asked myself the question, what is it off due to? Is it off because the conversations per rep hour is low? It's 7.32 today. That seems reasonable to me. Is it the conversion rate? Now, the conversion rate is down a tiny bit today. It's 6.20. This team tends to convert in sort of the mid seven range, seven plus percent. It could be that we've unleashed some new lists on them and they're very cold or you know, cold lists convert at a lower level than uh, less efficiently than, than follow-up lists. It could be that their wait times are a little long. And in fact, they are, they're four minutes today. So then I can look into, well, who is that true for? For one of the reps, it's 11 minutes and 12 seconds. For the rest, it's around, around three. What's going on with that rep? You see where this goes, right? The metric leads you toward root causes if you have the data. I like data that tells me how many units of something are being produced per hour because all we have at the end of the day is the day and the day only has so many hours. So that's what I prefer and kind of, you know, what I look at every day. I frankly don't know how CEOs run companies who don't have access to this kind of information, but apparently they do. But I think they're kind of stuck looking at trailing indicators. I like looking at leading indicators. Okay. In your experience, what are the most effective strategies for building strong relationships with clients and customers? Number one, be on their side. It's so easy in customer situations, client situations to say, well, I represent my company, so I've got to be on our side and everything's got to be very transactional. You know, give, get, all this kind of talk. When you come right down to it, to me anyway, if you want to have a strong relationship with somebody and you're the expert in what they're buying and they're the expert in what they're doing, you need to be generous with your expertise. And so it means going that extra mile a little bit farther with regard to providing help. And you always can provide more help. It's one of the reasons I prefer not to have lots of paid professional services in my company. Some people love that, but I think kind of it gets you in a position of saying, well, you're transacting for every hour of our time. And, you know, we're not going to give you anything at the margin. The fact is there's a lot of unknown in any complex relationship. You're trying to accomplish difficult things together. You're going to run into unknowns. Who's going to step up and try to learn what that unknown is and how to resolve it first? I think that as the seller, it's smart to be first to step up, first to go toward the problem rather than conserving your hours and your resources. Now, obviously you have to make money and you have to figure out what is okay to give. And, and if somebody's uh, using you, and I'll use that word, then you've got to stop letting them use you. But that's not the normal problem that we run into. The normal problem is clients and customers over time start to feel transacted. They start to feel used. And if they're feeling used, they're going to look around for somebody who's going to help them without using them. All right. So here's an easy one for me. We have episodes on this in Market Dominance, guys. Number 10, 
How do you ensure that your sales messaging is resonating with your target audience? It's actually pretty simple. Your sales messaging, first and foremost, has got to set meetings. It needs to compel the best and repel the rest. A meeting setting rate of about 5% on cold calls tells you that for that particular audience, for that particular target audience, you're doing okay. You're above threshold. You can run 5% on cold calls and 8, 9, 10% on follow-up calls and make sure you have rescheduled meeting calls because meetings get blown and you're doing all right. Now, your conversion rate of downstream activities is a little bit different. And at every level, you've got to check. One of the things you should be looking for, I look for, is across the team, are the conversion rates similar? If they're highly variable, then we have a hidden variable somewhere. There's something we need to go in and figure out. It's not the messaging, obviously. Maybe it's how it's being delivered. Maybe there's a subtlety in somebody's voice or in how they respond to questions or how they ask questions in discovery. So that's where you're getting down to using performance issues around what's not messaging because the messaging is locked, using those performance issues to find out where you could be doing better. Because wherever you have those gaps, those are opportunities to learn to do better. Number 11, what advice would you give to somebody who's just starting their career at sales? If you can, sell something you believe in. Because when you don't believe in something, you acquire very, very bad habits in sales. I mean, sales is not a profession that should best be built on professional lying or tricks or manipulation. What you're really doing is you're becoming an expert in something so that you can help somebody else understand whether the solution that your company offers is the one that you would recommend as an expert. So it's very difficult to get yourself in the strong position of simply saying, hey, based on what you've said so far, what we've discovered together, my strong recommendation is that you do X. That's the ultimate thing to be able to say in sales. You want to be able to say that, frankly, every single time. By the way, X could be that you don't do anything at this time or that you don't work with us. But if you're representing something that you believe in and your qualification process has any chops at all, you're going to more often than not be able to honestly recommend that they take a next step that makes sense. That includes working with you and your company and moving forward. So choose carefully because if you choose to represent a product that you don't believe in or that you anti-believe in, you will acquire very quickly all of the worst habits of a salesperson and your career in sales will end up struggling as you're dealing with two things. One is the ineffectiveness of tricks. Sales is not a bag of tricks. Two is your own feelings about your profession. You may, rightly or wrongly, start to feel like you're not being straight up with people. And so pick carefully. And by the way, one of the reasons that buyers in B2B especially tend to go with who they think is the best salesperson is they believe that the best salesperson has their pick of the products and therefore they pick the best product. So it works the other way around. Pick a product you believe in and then don't worry so much at the very beginning about how much you're being paid. Be concerned 
with how you can learn to be an expert on something that allows you to be helpful. Well, as Anthony Iannarino says, staying one up, that is knowing more than the other party. Number 12, what are the biggest challenges facing sales leaders today and how can they overcome them? Well, Helen Finucci has been on this podcast a couple of times, and she wrote a book called Love Your Team, A Survival Guide for Sales Managers in a Hybrid World. So I'm going to map this question about leaders onto managers. And here's the, here's the issue. It's today, it's tomorrow, and it's forever. Your success depends on your team's performance. And your team's performance actually depends mostly on whether you support them, whether you support them, and by the way, as a team. So if you have somebody on the team that's underperforming, you owe the team really, really good performance management of that person. And you owe that person and yourself an open mind with regard to what's going to happen as a result of that performance management. So becoming a great performance manager is a huge challenge. Very few sales leaders are capable of doing great performance management. But if you don't do it, the rest of your team will feel like, hey, apparently we don't hold ourselves to high standards here. Somebody is able to do whatever and kind of get away with it. And so it's stuff like that. It is how can you get to the point quickly where your team, which is now going to be hybrid and quite capable of moving on, your best performers can move to another company and sell another product in a heartbeat. So how can you keep your team intact? How can you keep them being effective? And how can you do it without manipulating them? Well, I advise that you read, read Helen's book, and it doesn't matter what kind of manager you are, and think about this, that love your team is the answer to the big challenge. And the challenge is these days, the talent can walk out the door without taking a single step. And always as a sales leader or sales manager, the performance of the team determines your success. So those are my 12 questions. I thank ChatGPT for so quickly writing them up. I hope that my answers are of some value to the audience here. And had we had Corey Frank around on this, he would have done a much better job than I did of asking these questions. But on the other hand, hey, Corey, coming up with great questions is one of the things that you do. And ChatGPT, you know, not as subtle as you, not as many fantastic historical and literary references, and your poetry is much better. But hey, not bad, not bad. So until next time, for Corey Frank, this is Chris Beale, Market Dominance Guys. Go out and dominate. <laughs>